This is writer and game designer Robin D. Laws. And this is game designer and writer Kenneth Height. And this is our podcast, Ken and Robin Talk About Stuff. Bandwidth brought to you by Pelgrane Press. Stuff we're here to talk about in this episode include... Blake at the Tate. Cool B. Elliot. And my 2019 London Book Raid. Prophecies of Doom. Protagonists slopping through the wilderness. Battles of mud and blood. But at least in Gloom of Thrones, you know the story will get an ending. That's right. Gloom of Thrones is here. We talked about this game in April during the Kickstarter. But now you can get your hands on this game of delightful regicide at your friendly local game store. I do love me some regicide. In Gloom of Thrones, players take control of a noble family, make their life horrible, and then kill them. At the end of the game, the most miserable player wins. It's a great way to practice up for holiday gatherings. Gloom of Thrones is available in friendly local game stores starting December 2nd. Stop in and pick up your copy or go to atlas-games.com slash gloom of thrones or follow the link in the show notes because as the saying goes if you aim for the porcelain throne you best not miss the indistinguishable voice rattling over the tannoy the clickety clack 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 of destination boards being updated and the general fug of disorientation welcome us once more to another travel advisory because robin and i have just returned as we so often do in early december from london the great when the great stench the great smoke they should have better nicknames for london because it's actually <laughs> quite a nice city yes no one hates British things more than the British. Yeah, well, they live with them longer. Yes. We get to leave. That's the thing. But uh, we did not leave London before seeing uh, the William Blake exhibit, retrospective even, you might say, at the Tate Britain uh, that they so thoughtfully launched for us. And we uh, were, of course, impressed, stunned, and moved because that is how William Blake takes you, or me, anyway. I don't know. How did it take you, Robin? Uh, I thought it was an amazing show. It gives you, uh, like any great retrospective, it gives you a full opportunity to see the full breadth of somebody's work and put it in a context that you never get when you see, like, three of their paintings in a general uh, survey exhibition. And I feel more steeped in Blake than ever before. Before we continue, we should uh, let people know that we've already talked about William Blake on the show in a consulting occultist uh, segment in episode 263, where we uh, focused on his uh, status as a, uh, a, a visionary or uh, a person who saw ghosts coming out of his, his foot, one or the other, or both, depending on how you want to look at it. So very briefly then, rather than going through the full biography, uh, he is a, a printmaker, engraver, poet, illustrator, uh, inventor of uh, mythologies, who's flourished in the late part of the uh, 18th and in the early part of the 19th uh, century. And uh, it's also interesting to see uh, sort of the way artist careers are framed these days, because in the culture wars, nothing is so fraught as in the particular way that uh, exhibitions are framed and the text goes up on the wall. So uh, this time around, uh, in addition to a warning that some of the images contain suffering and uh, therefore were to be avoided by people who didn't want to see that. 
Um, and I guess if you fall into that category, most Western art, well, all Christian art, you got to get avoid all that too. In addition to that, uh, they uh, were very clear that they didn't want to uh, put a definite uh, expression on uh, the meaning of Blake's work because it is open <laughs> because to so that many. is a mugs game. Yes, it is a mugs game. It's open to so much interpretation. Uh, he created his, uh, as I said before, his own mythology, and it's uh, highly uh, symbolic and highly idiosyncratic. Although I have to say, some of the images, like Satan meets the Pope in Hell, I think yeah. perhaps did have a, a clear explicable message behind at, at the very least there is a text for there to be a subtext beneath i would say that um robin um i'm gonna begin this by breaking our heart are you ready to have your heart broken i'm always ready to have my heart broken okay i'm a canadian I'm used here's to the it. thing that we missed because we did not know it because we did not go to the website they projected william blake's the ancient of days onto the south side of St. Paul's Cathedral while we were there. And there's a picture of it on the website. Right. Uh, because one of the things they were trying to establish is that uh, Blake had ambitions to have great, giant, monumental pieces of art. So, he wanted yes. his extremely striking, some might say uh, distressing images displayed at basically kaiju height. Yeah. Uh, so, whatever dimension you go into, if you find that that's actually happening as more than a projection uh, you can that that along with the dirigibles is a a bit of a uh, tip off. The mm -hmm. um, narrative focus, therefore, of the show was not on the meaning of his work, but on Blake as freelancer, on the business of being an artist, and how he had to go from one patron to another over the years, and uh, frequently uh, wound up breaking with them when he uh, uh, quarrelled with them, or thought that the things they were asking for were boring, or in one case. Uh, got into a, uh, a fight with a soldier and was uh, falsely arrested and uh, his, his patron didn't back him up on that or felt embarrassed by the uh, proximity to him. And I mean, so, he bailed him out, but then there was a, then they sort of had to part ways after yeah. that. Um, and so that each, in each stage of his career, his production is depending on uh, what he can sell. He's, there's no uh, big state patronage is not a thing. Uh, and uh, he's uh, not going to, uh, with his weirdo many-faced demons rising uh, from the deep, he's not going to get commissions from the Anglican Church uh, to the extent that they commission <laughs> anything. Not. It ain't that. And so uh, it looks at uh, his various opportunities that he's had over the years and his work changes in response to uh, changes in demand. He also uh, is a technologist. He develops uh, his own form of engraving called a relief engraving. Uh, which is still something of a puzzle to scholars, exactly how it worked, but it allowed him uh, much finer detail and to intermix text and image in the same plate. And that's what allows uh, basically his poetry verging on graphic novel format of things like uh, Signs of Innocence Experience, where he is interweaving uh, his handwriting with the uh, decorated images and, and sometimes uh, running out of room and having to move up the side. And uh, uh, I guess you don't start over if you're relief engraving. No, you're sort of stuck in the middle. If you suddenly think of a better line and you've already poured the acid onto the copper or however it was that it worked, you are sort of a, uh, a prisoner of your own technology there, just like we all are, I guess. Uh, now, aesthetically speaking, the thing that really struck me about it by seeing everything together is just how everything in Blake's uh, illustrational world, his either his Christian mythology 
uh, as in his illustrations of Milton or his own self-created mythology that the ecstatic visions, the ecstasy is more than just religious ecstasy or visionary ecstasy. It is a physical ecstasy that uh, uh, being created is sexy, being uh, tempted by Satan is oh so sexy with his uh, little snake ribbon that he wears, the uh, uh, being uh, tortured is sexy, that uh, there is uh, an eroticism to uh, to Blake when you see everything all together, uh, and a, uh, that A, uh, I think, makes the disturbing stuff all the more disturbing, and, uh, and B, I think, is less apparent when you're just seeing, uh, you know, a couple of images, because uh, in, in the other situation, you go, well, I'm not sure what the... Oh, but you see them all together, and it's like, yep, that's that's definitely... Uh, not just a uh, an apocalyptic vision, but a vision of uh, apocalyptic arousal, if you will. Yeah, I mean, uh, we know that Blake uh, and his wife, uh, Catherine, enjoyed a, a vigorous uh, married life together. Um, and people would comment on how how uh, affectionate the couple were, even in public, when I, I think in Regency times, maybe you weren't quite so PDA-y as you were in other eras, although the Regency, I think, was the PDA-ist of the eras up until swinging Carnaby Street. But still, uh, even for that, even for the Regency, Blake and Catherine enjoyed each other, and they would wander around their garden naked when they were living out in uh, the country, at least. I don't know if they did that when they moved back to the city where there was less privacy, but people would, you know, sort of, you know, come to visit Blake at his cottage in Sussex, and there he is, big as life, and uh, and that was just sort of the, the way that they operated. So there is, a, and one of the books that I did not buy in the museum gift shop was a book called Blake and the Age of Aquarius, because that sort of carnality combined with spiritual ecstasy is, of course, something that, as I hinted in this rambling uh, statement, also blossoms very much in the 1960s. And so the notion of a Blake emergence in the 1960s, first of all, it's great game fodder. But second of all, it's a very interesting artistic statement. And I do sort of wish that I had uh, had 35 extra pounds lying around to buy that book, but I did not. So uh, later, uh, scholars, perhaps, maybe even me, can uh, find that book and uh, and learn more good things. Our uh, Boone colleague, uh, Lynn Hardy, who we visited the show with, commented that uh, when you see it all together, you see, oh, look, it's Alan Moore. It's the, pre- it's the precursor to Alan Moore, or uh, Moore is very much emulating Blake. And that's definitely also something you see is Blake as the uh, ur-graphic novelist. And yeah, he's a very Jack Kirby with his own insane mythology that sort of connects to a mythology that you know, but by and large does not. You know, the Blake's uh, Orc and Urizen and Los and Anatharmon and the rest of those are very much Jack Kirby's new gods in, in a way that they are uh, both mythically resonant, but they're very personal symbols. And they change depending on what Blake is thinking on any given day. So the, the game ability of this is, uh, is pretty obvious that, uh, you could, uh, have your characters show up in the early, uh, 1800s and see a, a Blake eyes London with all of these weird monumental figures having been realized. And, uh, you better hope that it's, uh, Orc, the spirit of rebellion, uh, who is, uh, who is one and not the dastardly or demonic forces that are, uh, trying to keep us from, realizing our personal liberation and uh existing in a world of uh of pleasure and or because um, uh, otherwise the 
I guess you're going to have to say that everything has gone terrible and that the uh, uh, the good people are uh, are suffering, and uh, it is the uh, it is the player characters who are going to have to make things right and uh, put down uh, uh, Milton's Lucifer and uh, and all of his uh, awesome looking. Or Blake's orc, yes. which is in the one hand the spirit of creativity, but is also the spirit of red revolution, literally. And uh, as we learned from France. These things can get out of hand. So how would you, uh, are there additional ways to, to bring this imagery into uh, into gaming, Ken? There is a Blake Tarot that uh, you can buy online, or at least I you used to be able to. I don't know if you still can. And I'm allowed to use that in my games once every 10 years, apparently. Um, by and large, I take the notion of the Blake uh, gods and giants as sort of a, a secret uh, pattern uh, the first time I ran it, it was in a GURPS Cabal game, and, and Blake Giants became sort of the Nephilim who were rising up against God and the created world and were trying to uh, uh, take it over. That's a very uh, uh, easy uh, reductionist reading of Blake and is wrong. And so uh, in my Unknown Armies game, the Giants were uh, embodied representations of power. Uh, the trouble is that that doesn't quite work with the Unknown Armies aesthetic where everything is human. And so the notion of uh, people all believing in the same giant uh, created a, a a cosmic entity, but it's but it's not quite the same. Uh, it, it doesn't quite fit. So the third time I do it, which I guess is going to be in another seven or eight years, then I'll figure out how to use Blake in a game. I have not yet figured out how to use Blake in a game correctly, although the imagery uh, and the and the sort of uh, concepts be, are, are just so strong that once you start looking into them, you will find them sort of soaking into whatever else you're thinking about uh, towards the end of his career in the 18 uh, late teens and twenties, he has a group of followers around him that call themselves the ancients. And they're sort of young artists who look up to Blake as this uh, idealized, uh, never compromised, never back down pure artist. And they of course are a player character group. So if you care about running around uh, 18 teens, 1820s London with or without Frankenstein. And, and that seems like fun. Look up the ancients and play them. And of course, because Blake was very uh, feminist, you can have uh, female artists of the ancients. You just probably have to look a little harder because art historians are not feminist, but I'll bet they were there. And you can have all manner of fun while they're fighting monsters and being guided by visionary heads. And, and there's your Blake uh, London game. And about as many people will be interested in that, I'm sure, as we're interested in Jerusalem in 1820. Um, so count yourself the elite. Uh, because he led such a busy professional life, uh, keeping food on the table and moving from one patron to another and one uh, market opportunity to another, uh, he, he was getting stuff done. He was productive and sometimes he was popular and sometimes he wasn't. Uh, finally, he sort of capped his career with a big, big statement, single person show that was uh, regarded with derision and killed the wave of interest in his uh, in his work. Uh, but because he's uh, like you and I can a, a, a hardworking creator, it's uh, he doesn't have time to go off and uh, solve mysteries and stuff. But, you know, maybe he could be uh, he, he does have visions, so. He could be a patron who sends uh, the uh, player characters off uh, to uh, investigate the strange ghosts and stuff that he is uh, he's seeing. He certainly does see spirits and so forth. So he could yeah, he's, be. He works with an astrologer uh, for a while named John Varley, not the science fiction author, a different John Varley. Or and, so we were told. Or so we are told and uh, came up with a hundred or so visionary heads, which are of famous people who appeared to Blake. Um, 
And some of them are mysterious people. And so maybe tracking down the missing visionary heads or identifying them like you are, you know, um, uh, you get the identical kit of, of someone who's a, a serial killer or a terrorist or a, or some other kind of person of interest. And it turns out, oh, that's one of Blake's visionary heads. And you recognize it because of your Blake magic connections. Um, and then what's going on with that? Did Blake see something? Uh, what's going on? Uh, what else might be deep in Blake's uh, lesser known works? One of the things that they did have in the exhibition were a lot of the Blake things that you don't see a lot or that doesn't get talked about very much. Like the Blake illustrations of Dante, you'd think would be all over the, all over the place, but they're not really. Um, and then uh, the latter engravings, the ones that he was doing in that different style, the sort of almost proto Rockwell Kent style that he, I think was taking from uh, Northern European Gothic engravings. Cause those don't really look, Blakey, if you, you know, if you, if you think of a, a traditional Blake engraving with the sort of loopy, uh, line and the big, uh, blocky geometrical portions of the face and, 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 and background, um, the, the latter etchings that we saw there really kind of looked different and strange and cool. Um, and so that it's not particularly gameable, but it did strike me that even someone as characteristic and idiosyncratic as Blake, there are things in his style that you don't immediately recognize unless you are deep in the Blake weeds. And of course, the great missed opportunity is we're going through reading about Blake's uh, radical connections and his crazy monsters that he's making up and the fact that he illustrated books by Mary Wollstonecraft. Where's our Blake Frankenstein? That's the alternate history that you want, not necessarily the 300-foot giants rampaging around London at the behest of Orc. But I'd kind of like to have the Blake illustrated Frankenstein that uh, someone commissioned. I guess no one connected with that book ever had enough money to commission William Blake to illustrate it. But that'd be your if you're a time traveler and you find yourself in 1818 with some extra gold rattling around in your pockets. Why not kick some of it to William Blake and make that Frankenstein for me? Right. Because I think if I remember my reception history of that book is that it took a while to really filter into consciousness that there is. Yeah a period of it being out and nobody really noticed it. And then it had a comeback. And I think the comeback is a little late for, uh, for Blake. Yeah. Um, he did do, uh, the Pilgrim's progress, which again, you rarely see because no one cares about Pilgrim's progress right, anymore, yeah. even though it was a phenomenally influential, uh, book for, uh, for countless uh, decades. Uh, well, I think at this point, uh, so first of all, if you are in London, uh, uh, the show continues until the 2nd of February. Um, and we're going to, uh, for the moment, stop dealing with the uh, aftermath of uh, one convention and, and we're going to rock it backward in time uh, to something that uh, happened around uh, a different convention. And then we'll be back for more uh, Dragon Meat Wrap Up. By the great gold worm, is that an escalation die I hear? Why, yes, it's making us more powerful and awesome F-20 adventurers by the round. Well, I think we're going to need it because there's a whole lot of fantasy action coming our way as 
13th Age again leaps into the bundle of holding. With a brand new epic deal on PDFs in the 13th Age Adventures Bundle. Includes such classics of innovative dungeon busting as... The Crown Commands. With Mapfolio. High Magic and Low Cunning. With Mapfolio. Fire and Faith. With Mapfolio. And more. Speaking more, the basic 13th Age Bundle has also been revived, so newcomers can jump right into Pelgrane's love letter to classic fantasy. Featuring the core book, 13 Crew Ways, The Bestiary, a soundtrack, and the campaign to beat all campaigns, Eyes of the Stone Thief. Find it only in the bundle of holding. And only until Monday, December 30th. It's time once more for Ken and or Robin to talk to someone else. And this time, Ken and Robin are talking to Colby Elliott of Last Word Audio. And you produce audiobooks of books about role-playing gaming, which uh, uh, seems like a surprising thing to me as uh, someone who's been around for a while. And all the more surprising, one of the things you've done is Robin's Laws of Good Game Mastering. Uh, so we'll get to that in a second. Uh, but... Uh, let's start at the beginning. How did you decide to start making uh, RPG audiobooks? Uh, well, I, I started off as a uh, middle school and high school theater teacher. And uh, eventually, after being a, a technical theater teacher, I figured, knowing what I know about equipment, I would be able to make audiobooks. And for me, role-playing has been a passion of mine since the Moldway set when I was 11 years old. And uh, starting off with the Keep on the Borderlands and the Isle of Dread and, and all of those classic modules. And I always wanted to have a way to marry the two together. And I started looking for ways to help myself as a game master because I, I figured I needed some help in, in preparation. But also, uh, I also wanted to help the role-playing community because I feel like the more people we have sitting around tables telling great stories together, you know, the better the world is. Um, so books about role-playing, uh, what is it that makes them suitable for the audiobook format is something that you would choose over the printed version? Well, typically, if, if it's stating a, a philosophy, that's something that's really important. For example, one of the pieces that I did is uh, Sly Flourish's The Lazy Dungeon Master. And the core philosophy behind it is that by preparing less, you can enjoy your game more by using more improvisational techniques. Um, with your book... It's the key is understanding the players in on on such a, a close level that you're able to 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 tailor the game to their enjoyment. And I think if it has that core tenant, and it's not terribly reliant too too reliant on on charts and graphs and those kinds of things, it t definitely can make a very good audiobook. And I mean, this is the question I think literally everyone who hears what you do asks first is. How do tables work? Do you just not do books that have tables in them? <laughs> or, or is it some sort of bizarre audio matrix that you create? What's, what's that about? One of the things that it, we're able to do when I put things out on, on, on Audible and on iTunes is I'm able to have the phrase, for this piece of information, please consult the accompanying PDF document. Right. And they're able to download those tables. So you can still have the tables, but at the same time, if you're you know, walking fluffy mm -hmm. out there on, on, the, uh, on the bike paths, you can still listen to the audiobook and then just consult the PDF later on or print it out when you go to take it to your game night. Right. So you're not just standing there saying, sheep, five to six, <laughs> <Yeah>. mountain hex, 
Sheep, large, so like, one to two, I'm, mountain hex. I'm sorry, officer, I drove into the median <laughs> while I was checking the wandering monster table in this audiobook, <laughs> right. uh, which I'm sure will get you out of a ticket for crashing into the median in, uh, and at into least in, a, in, in the blue states. <laughs> yeah, well, gets <laughs> well, you into yeah. other kinds of trouble. Lists are very, very much death. You don't definitely don't want to say a list too much. But if you can uh, compartmentalize things, for example, you say, for example, the type of player what that type of player wants and what their emotional kick is, that's something you can say as three columns. And you can, you can do that pretty well and get away with that. But if it becomes too much of a list, lists are absolute death to listen to. Even though we oftentimes hear people say, he's such a good narrator, I could listen to him read the phone book. You really don't <laughs> really want could. him to do that. Yeah. Um, Morgan Freeman. <laughs> now, uh, uh, one thing that uh, Ken and I get into trouble sometimes with our publishers is the use of sidebars. Because, of course, it is a common technique in uh, role-playing to take a chunk of text that you can't fit into the main flow and stick in the sidebar. So how do you work that into an audiobook? I record it at a break within the the overall thought and then usually that sidebar is another complete thought and then it's just a question of whether I want to put it at the beginning of the other paragraph or the end sometimes I'll experiment with how it flows best together um, but a lot of times because those are complete and encapsulated thoughts they do sort of flow naturally one to the other do you do you uh, signpost it as a sidebar you know sidebar and then you do the thing or is it you just are rebuilding the text and it's just there's this interesting paragraph that hopefully holds on its own but you don't call out that it's a sidebar don't necessarily call it it's a sidebar i might give it just a little bit of a pause before right. introducing it at before the next section of the text have you considered doing them in a funny voice <laughs> <laughs> i do a lot of funny voices when i do a lot of the fiction stuff right. and i did use a few of them um some of the players for example if you have the power gamer the power gamer is probably going to talk like this uh, but then that could also be the butt kicker, too. And you could also... You've, you could you've got to remember, Deborah had a, a long <laughs> day at work. Yeah, <laughs> that's right. And for, and for the well, strategist, you could have... Or, sorry, the tactician. You could have the, the tactician talking something like this. It definitely could do something like that, yeah. for sure. <laughs> uh, you could have sidebar music. You have this, this, a music cue that plays when the sidebar comes in. Yeah, exactly. um, so what do you hear from people who use the audiobooks in, in terms of how they are uh, using it to... Is it just a matter of... They need to absorb more information, and this is something that they do when they're uh, driving or, or walking the dog. And this is the, the main outlet is people who want to fill. Uh, they have waking moments, and they want you to fill them with uh, role-playing material. Because they only listen to one podcast. Yes. And therefore, they have extra time. <laughs> We're only, it's only an hour a week. Exactly. That's right. That's right. Uh, I... There is that aspect, absolutely, of people who are using it uh, because they're uh, on the treadmill or driving back and forth to work, absolutely. But there's also, I think, a lot of people will say it takes seven or eight repetitions before we can change a habit. And I think going back and revisiting, especially as someone who's taught for 12 years, it, it, revisiting those techniques again and again to get them internalized I think is definitely it it's something that's definitely worth doing to improve yourself as as a game master even as a player for sure so uh, people are listening to it multiple times mm -hmm. in order to get more out of it mm -hmm. I think that's definitely true yeah um, so uh, when you first tackle a text um, are you uh, how do you go about the process of uh, from 
you've decided to uh, choose this book, mm -hmm. and now you're going to make it into an audiobook. What is your process of doing that? Typically, when I break down the text, one of the things I, I look for are warning posts, uh, and those would be things, elements that I'm not familiar with, things that I haven't seen before. Uh, and then I try to take in, for example, if I know the person is, for example, Canadian, I will listen to as many Canadian things as I can to try and get that perfect lilting accent. <laughs> no, of course, I, yes. did not, I did not do that's, that. No, I, I do that's, remember. That's why Robin's Law sounds so much like Rush. Yes, exactly. <laughs> well, I remember you saying... Max I'm, Webster, I'll have you know. <laughs> on one of the previous podcasts, I remember you saying that you were hoping that, that it better be a Canadian accent. And one of the things that I have... Uh, a few different authors that have very distinctive voices. Uh, one that I work with, he's from Puerto Rico, and he has a very specific way of pronouncing his S's and Z's. And I, I didn't want to do that because I didn't want people to think that I was imitating them, but I'm bringing forth their spirit. And so I try to find that what that author's spirit is and bring it forward in terms of nonfiction. And then I also look for those elements that uh, maybe I wasn't really familiar with before. Uh, different, uh, there's some very specific things, especially in fantasy texts, where names are there and I may have never seen them before. Right. Or and never heard and them. And they're weird names with apostrophes and things like that. Right. If you, when you go to say, the first time you go to say Dritz Stewart, it's, mm -hmm. it might be something that trips you up. And especially because I'm sure, I'm morally sure, that there is a canonical way to pronounce it and there is a noob dummy way to pronounce it and you don't <laughs> want to get the wrong one. That's true. Because, well, I mean, and usually fans are so laid back about those kinds no, of no, things. No, no, they're, they're, they're totally laid back. They're, they're very chill. Okay. Yes. <laughs> um, so I've uh, listened to, to bits of your version of uh, Robin's Laws and uh, you're a much more authoritative version of me than I am. Uh, and uh, so I, 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 if, if I had been the one to do it, which of course I would have done incompetently, um, it would be more of a wise-ass thing. So how do you uh, uh, strike uh, the balance of tone? Uh, because I imagine that people don't actually want you to hit the jokes the way that they would, in, even on this podcast, mm -hmm. because uh, as you say, it's, a, it's about they're trying to absorb the information. So uh, how do you sort of strike the balance in your vocal performance between things that are fun to listen to and things that are easy to absorb? Well, I think from the standpoint of performance, you want to make sure that you're being as accurate as you can be to what the best version of that person would sound like on their best day. But then they're also the authority figure. And so you want them to come across both as this amazing person that you want to spend time with, but also as an authority figure. And finding the balance between those two can be a bit of a challenge. Uh, the jokes are key because they are breaking that tension that is coming across. Otherwise, it feels like you're, you're being explained to the, the, the entire time. But if you have those, those breaks where you have those jokes, it gives you a moment to reset the tension and then build the tension again towards a point that the author is, is wanting to make. And again, to express what is their, their truest, their best self, what would they sound like on their best day? So uh, how long have you been doing this for? I've been uh, recording audiobooks for almost nine and a half, almost 10 years now. And uh, what sort of uh, uptake have you seen in them since then? How did, how is, uh the uh, the audience uh, growing for them if it, if it is it used to be that 
you wouldn't find very many people who knew about audiobooks or they would still refer to them as books on tape. And now you tend to see people, oh yeah, I, I, I listen to that, or they listen to podcasts or a combination of both. And more and more people have at least some familiarity with it, which is great because it used to be when I would go to conventions, I, I went to a lot of comic cons and those types of things. And I would hand people my card that had the different books on Wonder Woman and Batman and those things. And they say, oh, I like to read books, and they didn't even about Batman. Yeah. About Batman, yes, exactly. Yes, I'm an intellectual, <laughs> sir. That's right. I, I do not prefer well, my yeah. Batman in auditory form, sir. I have you know. <laughs> and these, these, and the Batman book in particular was actually done by people who were uh, had degrees in religion and consumer studies, and they were college level discussions on elements of the Dark Knight. So when they're talking about Rachel Ghoul and they're talking about him in terms of, of the eco-warrior that he is, the people who are writing these are actual college professors, which mm -hmm. is, is, was really interesting. Now, you've brought up Batman, and that, of course, is all I will think about for the entire rest, possibly, of the day. But again, with uh, something that's written about a comic book or that's written about another form, illustrations are going to be super mm -hmm. core to getting the point across. And in a book about Batman, obviously, you would have panels from pages of Batman, one assumes. Is there a methodology for dealing with illustrations? Do you just uh, try to stay away from... I mean, I assume you don't do an audio book of, a, of an art book. You know, here's Bonaro's art. Mm -hmm. Let's talk about, oh, that's blue. That's so blue. I mean, <laughs> is, there, is there a way when a, a text involves a, a... Not even just an illustration, but maybe a graph or a table. Is it just, again, check the PDF, sucker? It, it is. the. Uh, I did a piece called The Supergirls, which is the history of comic book superheroines. And one would think that there would have been a lot of panels in there. There were a few covers, but there weren't a lot of um, there wasn't a lot of art to speak of. Mm -hmm. And a lot of what you wanted to see, you could see on the accompanying PDF. But the story that it was telling, the history that it was telling, went just fine without it right. having those those visual elements there. Yeah. So how do people uh, get your audiobooks? Uh, you can look for them on Audible and iTunes. Uh, you can actually get both Robin's Laws uh, as well as Triumph of the Walking Dead, which features a uh, an essay by Kenneth Height. It does. It uh, ha talked about uh, Edwin Jenner as uh, the... the uh, postmodern Merlin. The postmodern Merlin, the enchanter in the cave. Mm -hmm. That was a really fun one to narrate, by the way. <laughs> oh, I'm glad. <laughs> I liked it, yeah. Um, and you can uh, find them on Audible and iTunes. You can also go to lastwordaudio.com, and they will have links to all of the books that are out there um, in pop culture, in role-playing, and even in science fiction and fantasy. So how many people, I'm interested in the, the ecosystem then of how people get audiobooks. So is, uh, am I correctly assuming that Audible is a giant chunk and that people going directly to your site is a small number or? People going directly to my site will then link back to Audible. Uh, Audible is the largest place to find digital books, digital audiobooks. There are others that are coming in into the into the field, uh, but they're coming a little more slowly. You can find them through Google, Google Play. Uh, you can find them through uh, Downpour as well as through your local library. Um, there are there are um, different apps that you can use through your local library too. Um, my books in particular are only on Audible and iTunes and Amazon, though. Right. Are you working 
via the publisher. So uh, when you do my book, is it that Ben Bella says, get me Colby, and <laughs> there you are? Or is it a you uh, find a book you want to do and you talk to the author? How does that situation happen? Yeah. I read a book. I love it and am moved by it. Mm -hmm. And then I track down mercilessly whoever it is. The rights holder. That is the rights holder <laughs> oh, right. on that. Uh, I don't know if you remember when I emailed you, yeah, Rob, right, and I, yeah. I did, I, I was very keen to do it, mm -hmm. emailed him, and I think I may have even sent you the, the first bit of it, well, uh, a sample, uh, right, audio yes, sample of it. it. Yeah, and, uh, and, so, and so, sometimes that will be directly with the author, sometimes it will be with the publisher, sometimes it will be with an agent. Um, there are many different ways, depending on how old, if it's a backlist title, or there are some authors that I'm working with that want to have a simultaneous release with a print edition. Right. But what I, what I love about it is that it's your idea. Mm -hmm. It's not just some you know uh, guy is calling you and saying, "Well, volume ten is out. Colby, start practicing your apostrophes." That's oh right. God, not this again. Yeah. Is that? I mean, that that's doable. That's a thing that you can do. You can pick your own. Uh, and now, is that because you are so great, or is that? Generally, all audiobook narrators can operate. I mean, assuming you're not like you know a, a famous you know John Voight or somebody, but like if you're an audiobook narrator, is that a standard thing? Or at audiobook conventions, do, are they all like, oh, that's Colby? Yeah. We we shouldn't approach him directly. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's 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 not. Mine is not the typical path. Right. Uh, many will get in with uh, a publisher or set of publishers and they will be a hired gun for whatever piece they want to do. Right. Now there is some latitude as to what type of books that you um, that you can do. You can say no to a particular book if you wish. Right. Well, uh, one assumes that they're not indentured servants. <laughs> yes. But, uh, but that, that, that's why the end of every audiobook is, please help me. Please. I'm trapped in the random house studio. Yeah. Blink twice if you need help. Yeah. Uh, no, no, this is an audio book. Blinking is not audio. <laughs> blinking. You can't see the blinking. Uh, <laughs> no, but uh, yeah, for me, it's a, uh, each one of them is a passion project for me. And I think that's part of the reason why I've seen the success that I have. Right. Uh, I was a, a finalist for the Audio Award. Uh, I was a finalist for the uh, Independent Audiobook Awards uh, and an Audiophile Earphones Award winner. And I think the thing behind that, even though I do many, many, many fewer titles than most of the, the workaday narrators, many of them will do several titles in a month. For me, I do maybe one every two months or so. Right. And it's because it's specifically my passion and I want it to tie in to the geek and nerd world because I feel like the geek arts and the nerdly arts are incredibly important. And ever more so. Ever and more are so. you hoping to hear from publishers who want you to uh, audiobook them or uh, are you only interested in pursuing things that you discover yourself as passion projects? I'm always interested in in a publisher or an agent who comes to me with something that's really interesting. I had someone right after I did the Batman book came back to me and said, we have this book we'd like you to do. It's called Wonder Woman Unbound. And it's a history of Wonder Woman. Would you like to do it? And I immediately said, yes, absolutely, of course. It was something that was deep, deep in my bones. Uh, and so I never say no to interesting projects and I love collaborating with as many different uh, creatives as I can. And so when someone comes with, to me and says, this is something that I think would be amazing for you, and it fits within what we do at Last Word Audio in the geekosphere and the nerdosphere, uh, it, it could be. 
So that website again is lastwordaudio.com. Oh, that that was so uh, vocally <laughs> smooth. So good. Yeah. I okay. feel like I want to, you know, read that or listen to yes. it. Yes. Yeah. Well, uh, we're going to play a commercial and then you'll just have to listen to the regular trash voices on yes, the rest of the, the show. The, the the garbage voices, not the fancy voices. Thanks so much, Colby. No, thanks Thank so much. Gentlemen. I appreciate it. The best of Askfageln is now available at Drive-Thru RPG. All issues of Phoenix Magazine since 2013. That's spelled F-E-N-I-X. Can now be grabbed in special English editions. Containing stellar gaming material from our own Ken Height. And such other recurring stalwarts as Graham Davis. And Pete Nash. Also find Dice, the gorgeous photo book celebrating that classic gaming accessory. And Freeway Warrior, the series of post-apocalyptic choose-your-adventures by Joe Dever. And if you speak Swedish, not English... That's Swedish, not English. You can delight in every original issue of Phoenix. And the new Sagebrush and Six Guns role-playing game, Western. How do you say slap leather varmint in Swedish? Uh, oddly, Google Translate refuses to help on that. That's the best of Askfageln on DriveThru. Like William Blake, this podcast only survives by patronage. Make it happen by joining such beloved patron backers as... Dreaming Johnny. Alan Wilkins. Chris Sellers. Diane Donaldson. And Ethan, Mr. E. Schoonover. Well, boys and girls, humans and humanoids, uh, we know that at the uh, end of a trip to uh, Dragon Meat, Ken has filled his luggage with uh, books that he's brought back home with him, and uh, we're now about to gather and, and vicariously paw through them in a segment we like to call Ken's Bookshelf. Mm. Uh, so starting out, we have a name that will be very familiar to readers of our Ken and Robin Consume Media weekly text feature, and that is uh, John Dixon Carr, a favorite of Ken's and a writer of Locked Room Mysteries, and this time you added to your collection a title called She Died a Lady. Yeah, She Died a Lady is one of the... <laughs> Here's how amazing John Dixon Carr is. When I was, you know, growing up and working in the library system in Oklahoma City, I discovered John Dixon Carr basically as I discovered everything by reading my way through the bookshelves. And I read a lot of John Dixon Carr mysteries and thought I was done and was amazed and was happy and only to discover that later on, um, he had another pseudonym called Carter Dixon. And so I'd read most, I want to say all, but most of the John Dixon Carr Gideon Fell mysteries, which were apparently the ones my library stocked, but I'd read practically none of the Carter Dixon mysteries. So having bought a biography of John Dixon Carr a, a year ago or a little less, um, I have been diving, deep diving back into uh, probably my single favorite mystery author and discovering that there's a whole another half of that over it to go through. This is one of the Henry Merivale's. It's from 43. So it's a little bit late in the Merivale cycle. Merivale becomes sort of a big, dumb cartoon. And so it's like, if you imagine sort of a Scooby-Doo character in that he's uh, loud and stupid and he's 
obnoxious. And then he's also, of course, a brilliant detective. So you have to um, uh, put up with the detective in a way that maybe you don't with with other uh, John Dixon Carr detectives who only have the detective's bad habit of saying, oh, I know who did it. I just can't say. <laughs> because then the novel will then be the novel over. End. Every now and again, John Dixon Carr plays with that, ch- changes that up, and he has him say, oh, here's who did it. And he reveals something halfway through, and you're like, well, how how did he do that? And the guy's like, well, that's how we have to find out. So sometimes it becomes a how done it, not a who done it. But by and large, there's just a lot of um, uh, ridiculousness that prevents you from finding out what happened. But the uh, underlying plot is still super strong, and of course, the mysteries themselves are nonpareil. This uh, she died, a lady, like I say, is a um, uh, Henry Merivale. It's 1943. There's a lot of twists and turns. It's I don't want to say it's one of the lesser Merivale's because I haven't read it yet, but I think it is not as universally praised as some of the other ones, but it was in print and I would love to send the signal uh, to publishers to bring more John Dixon car back because there are some John Dixon cars that I cannot yet afford. And if they are simply reprinted or rekindled, that would make my life better. So Get to it, publishers. Now, uh, unlike other bookshelves, uh, in the London one, I actually get to paw through your pile. But this one, I forget what it is. The Red Ribbon by H.B. Lyle. H.B. Lyle wrote a book that uh, I got the first one of last year, The Irregular. And its premise is that Wiggins, the head of the Baker Street Irregulars, then becomes the first uh, agent of the M- of MI6 when it's founded in 1909. He grows up to become a spy. And that's a fun concept. And H.B. Lyle, the novel was not amazing. It was not, you know, Jeremy Dunn's by any stretch of the imagination, but it was all right. And it taught me about a new weird anarchist who I had not heard about. So it was a big bonus uh, just as a as an experience. It's a fast read. So I thought, let's pick up the sequel. Let's see what's up. So that's this is the second irregular novel. And once more, I assume Wiggins will be battling his own personal demons and uh, the class system and also Britain's enemies, just like he does. Now, every year you you pick up a couple of titles uh, to distract uh, your lovely wife, Sheila, from the other books you've purchased. Um, And every year we have the question comes up, do we include these on the show? To which I always say, in what way are these not on topic for what we do? (laughs) And the answer is they are. Uh, So this brings us to The Secret Poisoner, A Century of Murder, by Linda Stratman. Yeah, this is basically a history of poisoning told, I think, in the case of, or in the, in the form of a bunch of high profile poisonings, uh, of the 19th century, mostly in Britain. There is a last chapter called Our American Cousins, which I'm hoping, uh, Sheila will enjoy as well. But this is the century in which people are inventing industrial chemistry and industrial rat killer and industrial society and the industrial nuclear family and forensic medicine at the very tail end of all of those, because guess what those first four lead to? That's right. A spate of husband poisonings. Yes. Well, the, the, uh, yes, the progress on poisons, uh, uh, at this period is faster than the progress of poison detection. But, uh, so, so the Victorian era is, um, uh, and I, I suppose there's there's some sort of an argument that you know this is the uh, hard substrate the, the 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 conditions on the ground if you will the the Marxian preconditions for the f- creation and flourishment of the detective novel is that before 
you had a relatively simple way to murder somebody and people in a in a house together and uh, industrial poison, you didn't really have the consciousness of that. And the mystery novel doesn't need yeah, to so exist. Yes, you had plenty of non-sneaky murderings, uh, yeah. but they didn't require okay. a lot of detection. Uh, next up, we have A Line in the Sand, Britain, France, and the Struggle that Shaped the Middle East by James Barr. Yeah, this is about the Sykes-Picot Agreement, which was a secret agreement in 1916 uh, by a British diplomat named Sykes and a French diplomat named Pico, which divided the Middle East between Britain and France. And immediately, both parties to the agreement backed off, tried to change it, tried to undermine the other one. Meanwhile, the people involved, the Syrians and the Arabs and the uh, and the Jews in uh, what was then Palestine, uh, kind of said, hey, what was that about? <laughs> not to mention the poor Ottoman Turks, uh, who, of course, were not invited to ask the question because they were the baddies in the war. They were in the central powers, so they deserved to have lines drawn in their sand. But... Uh, the rest of it created the Middle East that we have come to know and love today. Uh, and so that is a, a big part of our of our sort of uh, current affairs, much less our history. And also, it has lots of the kind of spy skullduggery that I so very much enjoy. And in a context that I think many uh, histories of intelligence leave off. They talk about, you know, the the great World War II and Cold War intelligence, but this sort of, what do I want to say, colonial intelligence and revolutionary espionage work uh, is, if anything, more productive of conditions on the ground than various KGB versus CIA maneuverings over Berlin, which, no matter what happened, wasn't going to change hands until the overarching system fell apart. Uh, still on the intelligence tip, uh, we get to Under Every Leaf, the War Office Intelligence Division by William Beaver. Yeah, there's been a spate of histories, and I suppose it's because someone found the archive, uh, of the various military intelligence services in Britain. There's a good naval intelligence book about N uh, Nelson. There is uh, a couple of good uh, uh, military army intelligence bureaus. Um, in Africa and in uh, some of the other places. This book, I believe, is that I'm going to pull together a generalized history of the War Office Intelligence Division, which uh, when you read Kim by uh, Rudyard Kipling and you, and you hear about the political service, that's what they were. The politicals were the guys that were hired um, by the, the War Office or the Home Office and went out and um, spied out the land, as they say in the Bible. And this attempts to put more documentary history underneath um, uh, well, Kipling said it, which is what most uh, histories of that era um, uh, intelligence work have come down to, because I guess up until recently they hadn't found the archive or it hadn't been declassified. Now, uh, there's no such thing as a, a book, Ken, that you can purchase that will not at some point filter in some way into your work. But some... Yes, all books are tax deductible. All books are business expenses. Yes, but some are more immediately, obviously, tax deductible than others. And uh, sometimes they directly relate to your current project. And that mm -hmm. brings us to Twilight of the Hellenistic World by Mike Roberts and Bob Bennett. Yeah, this is a history and I've started it. This is the first of all the books that I brought home that I've picked up. Um, so good for it. Uh, this is a history of the last third of the third century. So from about 230 BC to 200 BC. And the argument is that so often, especially in this era, because our main source is a Roman historian, Polybius. I mean, he's living in Rome. He's actually Greek, but that's not the point. Um, the Polybius is our, is our main source. 
we interpret uh, that period as everyone getting ready for Rome to come in and clean up. And it's their various decadent foolishnesses and squanderings of power that just recreate a, a societal need for a strong Western army to come in and slap them around and tell them what for. And that, of course, is the message of Polybius. And uh, Roberts and Bennett say, with some rationality, even if that is true, we do not look at the history of the 19th century in Europe as the prefiguring of America coming in and slapping some sense into people because that would be reductionist and wrong and teleological and not remotely how yes. anyone involved people who live saw in that. foreshadowing times don't know they live in foreshadowing times. Right. They don't know that that. So the attempt in this uh, book is to basically ignore Rome or to leave it off stage and center the narrative on what were these various Greek and they were pretty much all Greek decision makers uh, deciding uh, to do and on what basis. And uh, the good side is that we do have Polybius, who, while something of a, of a, of a jerk, is still a very complete historian who aims at Thucydidean uh, rigor. And so that's why all of a sudden, if you've been a follower of Hellenistic history, you know that everyone sort of stops talking in 301 BC and starts tap dancing. And then as you get to about 2.30, suddenly history begins again. That's because we're missing the last half of Diodorus, but we do have all of Polybius. So there we are. History resumes, and Roberts and Bennett are attempting to recast it as history as it was thought of and acted on by the people in the era, not just as a rehearsal for the Roman Empire to come in and uh, get everyone lined up in a proper row. Uh, now we come to Africa's Armies from Honor to Infamy, a history from 1791 to the present by Robert B. Edgerton. This is one of those ones with a subtitle, does a lot of explaining. What else do we need to know? Yeah, this is the um, an attempt not so much at a military history of Africa, but a history of Africa's militaries. And that's an area that's not very much explored, and that's really why I picked it up. The first, say, 100 pages of the book talks about the indigenous armies, and then it talks about their resistance to colonial aggression, and then it talks about both their use as uh, internal police by the colonials, co colonial powers and their role as revolutionaries, successful or unsuccessful. And then, as you can tell from the subtitle, Honor to Infamy, it talks about their role in taking over the new countries and miring them in oppression, murder, genocide, and, and further war. And uh, I don't know if Robert Edgerton has a particular axe to grind. I haven't read the book all the way through. I suspect he disapproves, for example, of uh, the Rwandan genocide, uh, as most people do. And I guess the question is, what does he feel about the Ugandan invasion of Rwanda, of Rwanda and Burundi and basic occupation of those countries? Does he say, well, a regrettable necessity, given all the genocide? Or does he say... Well, you still shouldn't invade and take over people's countries just to get at the delicious cobalt uh, nearby. That seems bad. So I don't know if Edgerton's got an axe to grind or if he's trying to do a straight-up military history, and that's why we buy books. Statistically speaking, since you pick up so many uh, books on your travels, occasionally you purchase one that I uh, have read, and in this case would strongly recommend The Psychopath Test by John Ronson. Uh, this is his uh, pop journalistic exploration of uh, the experience of being a psychopath, what makes you one, what uh, uh, what doesn't, and 
uh, I think is a subject that has uh, not just psychological, but also increasing political ramification. Uh, Ken, what uh, led you to grab that other than you're already knowing that it was good? Um, yeah, there's already knowing it's good. There's having been a fan of John Ronson from the ages of them and the men who stare at goats, both of which are terrific books. And uh, also the question of what is madness is very, very relevant to a Lovecraftian a game designer and Lovecraftian aficionado and how do we define it and who gets to define it and how can you tell and what does it look like and all of these sorts of questions and John Ronson is just the guy as I've discovered from the previously cited them and uh at goats to give me a pretty good first crack at uh, topics like you know where do psychological tests come from and are they any good? And all the other interesting questions that uh, sort of get shuffled under the, uh, under, under the covers in our uh, era of professionalism and scientism that has perhaps led to an understandable rebellion against that era. And so I'm very curious as to find out what John Ronson has found out. Now, uh, when you showed off uh, the next volume, uh, Palgrain uh, co-publisher Simon Rogers exclaimed, why... There's a plot hook on every page. And this, of course, is The Secret Tunnels of England by Anthony Clayton. And uh, I think we can both attest it is what it says it is. Yeah, it is a it is a book of secret tunnels of England. And I will just real briefly read you the chapter headings. Treasure tunnels, musical passages, uh, the passage of time, which is uh, tunnels in folklore and history, misbehaving monks. That's tunnels underneath abbeys and nunneries. Hello. Smugglers tunnels, castle tunnels, subterranean cities and towns, cross passages, which is the thing about London. And finally, and afterward by our very own, our friend of the podcast, though he knows it not, Gary Lockman on the occult underground, which I suspect is the underground in the occult. So a real score. And it's a lovely uh, physical uh, thing. It's a, it's a nice, nicely designed book. Uh, shout out to whoever the publisher is. It says Treadwell's right there on the front. Accumulator Press. Um, uh, shout out to Accumulator Press for doing a good job on that book. And this is the kind of thing that um, I go to Treadwell's first because I love it, but also because they really do bring in a lot of small press things that I would literally never see anywhere else. And it's, you know, even your Amazons would not, the all-consuming algorithm would not know that I needed secret tunnels of England. But of course, Treadwells does. Well, it's time for us to uh, uh, take the tunnel that leads under the very special commercial that connects uh, two parts of the same segment. But when we when we emerge, people, brace yourselves. There's going to be a shocking, if momentary, break in format. Have you found the yellow sign? The King in Yellow, Robert W. Chambers' unearthly book, has inspired millions of readers since the death of the Gilded Age. A beautiful new edition from Arc Dream Publishing brings fresh potency to its stories of poisonous romance. This deluxe hardback features gold foil embossing and a leather cover in the black snakeskin pattern that Chambers described. A foreword by John Scott Tynes sets the stage. Annotations by Kenneth Height elucidate the secrets and histories of every tale. 
Samuel Araya's full-color plates and charcoal illustrations evoke the otherworldly weirdness of Carcosa. Every print order comes with the PDF digital edition. The annotated King in Yellow insinuates itself into our reality in July 2019. The ball begins. It is time to don your mask. Join the masquerade at shop.arcdream.com. So we're back. We continue the Ken's Bookshelf segment, but as we literally never do, we're looking at a couple of books that are not on my bookshelf by some strange turn of events. Robin, do you have a bookshelf? Yes. Now, generally, I buy like one book when you're buying a, a giant pile of them, but this time, uh, two books found themselves into my hand, and I looked at them and I thought, well, if, if Ken had purchased these, we'd be talking about them. So, just because I bought them is no reason not to talk about them. No reason not to let the beloved listeners know. So, Robin, let us vicariously then consume your media, beginning with High Life, Low Morals, The Duel That Shook Stuart Society by Victor Stater. Yeah, so um, I've already started reading this on the plane, and uh, this is about a duel between uh, two uh, English noblemen in 1712, and uh, it uh, we're just... Uh, in the part that I've read, the the heroes or anti-heroes are uh, are but youngsters still. Uh, however, it's already proven itself to be uh, really what I'm looking for in a popular history, which is that it is evocative but not over-described. Uh, it has a wry sense of humor. It has a strong sense of narrative, and it tells you uh, what you need to know to follow the story and also the cool bits, but n nothing uh, additional, but also a sense of uh, finding the uh, historical forces underneath the story. So in this case, for example, it lays out the economics of being a wastrel courtier and why uh, those pressures existed on you to drive you in that direction uh, in a way that I've never seen before. And so we are familiar from uh, period dramas of seeing the aristocrat being heavily in debt as a plot element, but uh, this book goes into why that is and why that was endemic. And also the frequency of uh, violence between uh, nobles. We often look at that and go, historical people be crazy. But uh, this lays out exactly uh, what the incentives were that were leading people to uh, fight each other over apparently minor uh, slights of honor. Because uh, guess what? There was money and power in it. Spoiler. Mm -hmm. And politics. Yes. And also there's the fact that before you have uh, cheap, fast, distilled water, <laughs> everyone is half drunk all the time. Yes. Oh, well, everyone is completely drunk all the time. Yeah. Right. Well, they, I mean, I don't know how drunk you can get on English beer um, uh, unless you're really trying. But anyway, that's neither here nor there. Uh, also, uh, not enough do you engage in low duels. You are also up in the high castle with How to Read Castles, Malcolm Hislop. Yeah. So this is a crash course in understanding fortifications. This is a small copiously illustrated volume and uh, the reason that I picked it up is that uh, I'm currently working on a book about an area that at one point was a whole bunch of fortresses that then got smashed uh, and although uh, this uh, is mostly about medieval castles and fortifications and I'm uh, in the big rubble working in the ancient world it helps to have a source that really goes digs into the specific details of architectural features because Often, I have purchased visual dictionaries of architecture, expecting to have uh, 
pictures of this is what this little thing on this corner looks like and this is what it's called and then just gotten another list of broad architectural styles and cursed the heavens but i will not need to curse the heavens i will have this book which i can immediately use for my purposes and covers uh, not just medieval or uh, european uh, fortification but anything you might describe as a castle so this is something that will uh, come in uh, uh, handy and uh, uh, meets the much higher standard of a physical book that gets into my very, very small library in my uh, small apartment in downtown Toronto. All right. So that's two whole books that I bought. Let's move back to yours with All Stations to Murder, True Tales of Crime on the Railway by Barry Herbert, which is your uh, other uh, present for Sheila, but also highly Cartesian. Right. Um, it is a collection of that uh, just like it says on the tin <laughs> crime in the British railway system. And I, uh, this includes not just murders, but all manner of other crimes. So it's going to talk about the various other sorts of, uh, con artists and sneak thieves and bullyings and probably union violence uh, and anti-union violence on, uh, the railways. And then of course there's also going to be people's heads being found in left luggage and all the other good stuff that we love. Uh, basically it's a, it's a, it's a way to talk about lurid history and connect it to a, a generally improving theme, which is to say it's about 78% of all true crime. This one takes place on the railway and, uh, looks lovely. It has a, a chalk outline body with a railway inf- inside it on the cover. What more do you need? You don't need more. Uh, next we come to, uh, a little bit of family history, except it's an illustrious family because this is the Dashwoods of West Wickham by Francis Dashwood. Yes. Um, and I know what you're thinking. You're thinking Sir Francis Dashwood, the founder of the Hellfire Club, the man who set an ape on John Wilkes. Oh, my goodness. I can't wait to read his book. No, this is by the 10th Earl of uh, Dashwood or Lord Dashwood, whatever they are. Baron Dispenser, I guess. I don't know what the hell they are. Um, I guess that's in the book. But no, his argument is, well, he, he was also a member of parliament. And, um, there were other Dashwoods, you know. I myself was a traveling salesman in America and I had adventures just as fun. So there's, uh, going to be stuff about the, the, the headline Hellfire Earl. Uh, but there's also going to be stuff about the other Dashwoods. And I assume if you're looking for a sort of a, um, uh, Yagalanakish or Shubnigurathian, uh, lineage, a rats in the walls type situation, you can probably find all manner of creepiness in, in even, uh, being an inoffensive, uh, British aristocrat, uh, traveling through America. Um, but also, uh, there is a big chunk of the book is about West Wickham, the, uh, house of the Dashwoods, the, uh, well, I guess now it's the house of the British government, but, it was uh, belonged to the Dashwoods and is still mostly in its 18th century form. And if you're going to run games set in or around the uh, Georgian era, uh, first of all, who doesn't need a country house? But second of all, who doesn't specifically need a country house where you carried out uh, pagan orgies? So that's uh, that's great fun, too. West Wickham is going to be great. The other Dashwoods, I'm sure, are going to be just trying their best to make you stop thinking about the real uh, deal, Sir Francis. But, you know, when you're a spy and a Satanist and a political radical and a 
and a, a baron. I mean, how you can't be, you can't beat Sir yes, the real yes. Sir Francis. He put the rest of his family well in the shadow. Uh, it does. Now we come to uh, what seems like a more macro uh, look at history uh, with uh, probably no Satanism at all. A New World, England's First View of America by Kim Sloan. Yeah, this is not actually about history. This is about art uh-huh. because it is the full collection of uh, the watercolors and drawings made by John White, who was along with uh, Sir Walter Raleigh in the first Roanoke expedition. Oh, right. We've even, we've even, uh, he was a character in our segment about this. I believe he may have been. And uh, here he is in the first Roanoke expedition drawing away. And this is the complete book of his drawings uh, and paintings. So first of all, it's beautiful because he was, doing that sort of uh, proto Audubon-y science art. And second of all, it's fascinating because, of course, it's Roanoke. So look at the corners and margins to see if there's monsters and demons and manitous and whatnot. Anything can happen. And finally, I'm a big interested. I'm, I have a strong interest in the early colonization of America just on its own merits. And this is a book that I did not even know existed. And when I saw it, I had to own it. Now, uh, the next book uh, shows that it's, if your name is Cyprian Broodbank, you have no choice but to become a professional historian. Uh, and uh, this particular Cyprian Broodbank uh, chose to realize that, uh, at least in part by writing, The Making of the Middle Sea, A History of the Mediterranean, From the Beginning to the Emergence of the Classical World. And uh, this also, then, is uh, direct research for your current project. Yeah, it's more backdrop than research, because... He ends when most uh, classical histories of of Greece really get going, circa 500 BC. Um, he takes it down to um, uh, to there, I think, because that's when the Mediterranean has sort of I don't want to say calcified because it never calcifies, but we recognize it after that. And before then, there's all kinds of what was going on in Sardinia? We don't know. And uh, Cyprian is so very, very sad when he has to endorse the uh, old Eurocentric uh, model. Um, it just brings him to tears, broodbanky tears. But he is a real historian. And so he talks about the fact that when they um, uh, investigated uh, the Isle of Jerba, which is a large, beautiful, fruitful island off North Africa, you find pretty much no archaeological remains from before about 1000 BC. Whereas if you do that to any old island on the north shore of the Mediterranean, you're going back to, you know, Neolithic times. And he very much wants there to be an explanation for this. And uh, from a, a brief study of the book, it seems like his argument is that when the Sahara was not the Sahara and you lived between the Sahara and the Mediterranean, you were going south, not north, because there was huge grassy fields to be running your cattle around in and and uh, having adventures on, and building boats was for losers. And certainly, my own uh, Celtic ancestors would have agreed, barring the Nervi, of course. So, I guess that's the, uh, the, the way to look at it, is that there are some people who take to boats and some people who don't. And that is what made the Middle Sea the familiar Greeks, Phoenicians, and others that uh, we all know from... 500 BC and later, this sort of lays out, uh, to the extent that we have it, the archaeology and history that gets us to that point. Now, long-time listeners at this point will be going, wait a minute, there's been two deviations from the formula so far. Not only did Robin buy books this time, but all of these books so far have been kind of normal. 
we haven't gone to crazy town at all. And it's like, listeners, have you lost faith in us? Because uh, we're now going to wind up with the final three are firmly uh, in, uh, in, the, in the world of La La Land. And uh, the first one on the list comes from our old friend and subject of a prior segment, Kenneth Grant. And beyond the mauve zone. And I know what you're thinking, Robin. You're thinking, why go beyond the mauve zone? Isn't the mauve zone mauve enough? Isn't it great enough? It is. Well, I just assume that you got to go through the mauve zone to get to something awesome. You do. You have to go through the mauve zone to get to um, uh, barking, I guess. Barking mad. (laughs) Uh, No, this is the second book in the third trilogy of by Kenneth Grant. And I don't know necessarily... Uh, how much of this book was completed uh, or done by his wife, Steffi Grant, uh, because uh, at some point... Oh, and let's very briefly, for those of us joining the podcast in progress, uh, tell people who Kenneth Grant was. Um, Kenneth Grant is a heir apparent, one of the many heirs apparent of Crowley. Uh, he was in the OTO and uh, was a buddy of Austin Osmond Spare. And uh, then he discovered that H.P. Lovecraft was magic. And this is not an original discovery to Kenneth Grant, although he may have made it by himself. Uh, but it is the uh, sort of poetic and artistic component that even more than Crowley, who was a artist and a poet of um, uh, some uh, degree, uh, led him into this uh, particularly visionary and delightful a side path, this side left-hand path, and he talks about the... Right. Uh, well, you can tell Lovecraft was magic because of all of his statements that he was uh, a materialist. Dead right. giveaway. Yes. Right. But um, uh, that's, that, that'll lead you right there. The horrorist doth protest too much, he would say. Right. Uh, so, so the Mauve Zone, specifically in this case, is is the other world or a gateway to the other world. Right. Yeah. The, the, the Mauve Zone is the space of the dark clipote the the thing around the other side of the tree of life uh, on the other side of it is the mauve zone. And um, uh, I think you can only say uh, what Kenneth Grant's publisher or wife have said, mystics, sorcerers, alchemists, artists of many kinds have over the centuries skirted it, stumbled upon it and fled from it. Very few have penetrated beyond it and survived or cared to did leave any record of the experience. Those who did have had to present their accounts as fiction to discover <laughs> a new means of communication via weird art, symbols, hieroglyphics, signs which fellow pilgrims alone might recognize. And if that has not got a role-playing game started in your head, then you, you, my friend, need to get with the program. All the cool stuff is real. Uh, is All the, the cool stuff is real subtitle. and it's magic. And I'm going to tell you why. I don't know that I would have loved Kenneth Grant if I met him. Most people who are Crowleyans are kind of weird or or need need a, need a careful eye kept on them. Although I should say parenthetically, we did meet some lovely Crowleyans uh, on this trip because we went to the Aquarius Bookshop for Crowleymas, uh, their annual celebration of all things Crowley, and uh, the lovely lady who runs the Atlantis Bookshop couldn't have been more welcoming, couldn't have been more nice. Couldn't have been more uncrowleyan in every way. Yes. And uh, <laughs> the she best, showed the best us kind a, of Crowleyan ex- immediately expresses severe skepticism toward Crowley. Right. And and she um uh, and she showed us a magic ring that Crowley might or might not have worn that was on her own hand, and I got to hold it. Uh so if you're worried that I've got demons in me, blame Crowley. He put them there with his with his magic garnet. I think they he, were dispelled by long custody of this very nice uh, 
Books of this Canyon. nice lady, the, the, the niceness has driven them away. I'll bet that's true. But, uh, but so anyway, Kenneth Grant, I don't know that I would have liked him as a person, but I love him as a writer. He is just exactly too crazy. Um, he's not utterly bananas. You can make sense out of him. He's lots of, he's very toyetic, I guess. Uh, lots of sprues and things sticking off his, his, uh, his books and his thought that uh, can be ampl- amplified and played with. And he likes to sort of go back over the same ground and add new things to it as he discovers it, a habit that I find in my own self. Uh, next, we come to Night Side of the Runes, Uthark, Adelruna, and the Kabbalah, spelled differently than you might expect, by Thomas Carlson. So, Ken, how does an Uthark different than a Futhark, except that it's missing an F? Yeah, well, that's the key, right? The Uthark is the secret esoteric rune system. And you might say, but Ken, runes are pretty esoteric. And <laughs> Not Thomas esoteric Carlson, enough, apparently. Not esoteric enough. Not now that everybody else knows the runes. Thomas Carlson would say everyone knew the Futhark back in the day. That was just how you wrote down, uh, I'm King Higeloff and this is my stone, or whatever. But if you were a secret runologist, you knew that there was an Uthark uh, that was the esoteric runes. And I'm not going to be the first person to make a get the F out of here joke about the Uthark. <laughs> first but person on this podcast. Podcast. In this first instance. person on this podcast today. Yeah. Um, and so uh, Thomas Carlson d- discusses uh, the, the, the magic runes and the secret runes. And he finds, and this is going to be the best part of this book, I can promise you, two secret runologists, a guy named Johannes Boreas, who is beautifully contemporary with Count Magnus from the M.R. James story, um, who was a mystic and runologist who tried to figure out the secret of the secret runes, and a guy named Sigurd Agrell, who dies in 1937, and I think we all know what that means, nod. And so we have a fun uh, a 1930s runologist, and we have a cool Count Magnus runologist. And then, as if that weren't enough, there's also the Adelruna which are the noble runes, because Johannes Boreas, this first guy, was also a Kabbalist, because everyone in the 17th century, if you were a cool occultist, you had to be a Kabbalist. Kabbalah was where it was at. And there was a Christian Kabbalah that you could do, so you weren't being looked at with sidelongness by the by the church. And uh, Johannes Boreas Kabbalized uh, the runes to create the Adol runes, the noble runes. And this is uh, something that Languished in, I'm sure, deserved obscurity, but here comes Thomas Carlson, PhD, to unobscure it for us. And then I suppose re-obscure it because he's going to get a bunch of nonsense 19th century neo-paganism all over it. Now, Ken, like a good lawyer, uh, you uh, rarely ask a question that you don't know the answer to. And so uh, while in Treadwell's, uh, you handed me uh, a book and said, do you think this is up my alley? And the book was Beowulf's Ecstatic Trance Magic. Accessing the Archaic Powers of Universal Mind by Nicholas E. Brink, Ph.D. Uh, now, uh, one merely needs to uh, look at the author bio to know uh, that it is up your alley. Uh, I went to the extra trouble of looking at a random paragraph in which uh, he used the power of channeling to talk to Mrs. Beowulf and have her confirm all of his theories to know it was that... Mrs. Indeed, Rothgar. Yes. Uh, to to right. know that indeed... Uh, this was up uh, your alley, uh, and uh, uh, need anything more be said? I mean, I don't know. I mean, if if you are not going to be convinced by a person with a PhD 
who is a certified teacher of ecstatic trance. Yeah, d- d- do not go to an uncertified teacher Don't of ecstatic trance. Don't go to an uncertified people. teacher of ecstatic If we can leave you with one takeaway from this segment, it is certified teachers of ecstatic trance or get the futhark out. That's what we say. Uh, he is also um, uh, a professional psychologist because those guys don't have to be certified, apparently. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. When you go to your psychologist, make sure they either do or don't also have a certification in ecstatic trance. Yes. And um, uh, and then once in an ecstatic trance, you go talk to um, uh, Queen Weltho, who is uh, Hrothgar's missus. And she says, oh, Grendel was just misunderstood. He was a beautiful pagan spirit and he never attacked me, which is <laughs> uh, that's kind of special pleading. Yeah. <laughs> what about all the corpses in the hall? Well, you know how it is. But he was always nice to me, she says of Grendel. So I'm sure that there will be so much, uh, so, so much valuable about Beowulf and about ecstatic trance in here. I, I can't wait. You, if, if you are looking for the, the wisdom and wit of Mrs. Rothgar, as told by a guy with a round head and a fringe of white hair all around his round head, then this is the book that you need. Well, uh, Ken, I think I've spontaneously gone into an ecstatic trance. I feel like you may have. Yeah, and that means, of course, that uh, it's time to wrap up this uh, this podcast. And uh, uh, since we're both back from a... a exhilarating and tiring trip i think perhaps uh have a nap for about a week and then a week from now we'll wake up and do another episode of this here podcast stuff having once again been talked about it's time to thank our sponsors atlas games palgrave press astfagelm arc dream dork tower and pro fantasy software music as always is by james simple audio editing by rob borges Get your priority question-asking access by supporting our Patreon at patreon.com backslash Ken and Robin. Help this podcast win the duel against non-existence by joining such estimable Patreon backers as Jake Moss, Joss Borlase, Yuri Horneman, Martin Runquist, and Drew Clary. Show your holiday superiority with the gift of Ken and Robin merch at tpublic.com slash user slash Ken Robin. Check out our hottest new design, Carcosa Fandango. On Twitter, he's at Kenneth Height. And he's at Robin D. Laws. See you next time when once again, we will talk about stuff.